Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our exploration of air conditioning. What did we talk about in the last couple parts? Uh, well, we, we took a journey. We, first of all, we, we started in, uh, in the ancient world, and we talked about just how people have approached living in hot environments, in, in hot cities especially, uh, you know, since the, the dawn of human civilization. Yeah, and some of these solutions for dealing with the heat before the invention of air conditioning were cultural. They were mm-hmm. like about, you know, where life takes place and, you know, where you do certain things and under what conditions. And other solutions would be more architectural, like uh, we talked about that ingenious solution uh, from ancient Persia involving the wind catchers and the underground channels of water called the canats that would cool the uh, air that flowed through buildings that way. Uh, And of course, uh, millions of people in hot climates around the world still don't have air conditioning today and they use older techniques and strategies to deal with the heat. So a lot of these things we're talking about are not things of the past. They're just uh, – they're less a part of culture in places where air conditioning is now prevalent. But then, of course, we got into the the invention of the true air conditioning system. Right. We talked about John Gorey, the doctor from Apalachicola, Florida, who developed a chemical process for manufacturing ice – for the purpose of cooling hospital rooms. Also, we talked about the Ice King, Frederick Tudor, and the ice trade, which mm-hmm. was a fun diversion. Uh, and we also talked about Willis Carrier, the American inventor who created a dehumidification process for industrial printing spaces, but then, of course, quickly realized that this technology could be used to cool and dry the air for human comfort in homes and businesses. And that's sort of that, – that's the money insight, right? The, you know, the rubbing the fingers together moment. And so, of course, uh, this luxury had massive appeal when it was new. Having a cool building during the sweltering days of August, imagine when that was a near total novelty. Yeah, and so this episode is going to to look at how this novelty unfolded, uh, particularly in the United States, but also looking at uh, some examples from elsewhere in the world Mm -hmm. uh, to, to show how it ends up transforming uh, you know, society to a certain extent, certainly, and, and also transforming a number of other uh, aspects of, of our modern life. I think you could argue that the legacy of air conditioning is one of the most underappreciated technological influences shaping the last hundred years of especially American culture, but culture probably all over the world. I mean, certainly for those of us who, who grew up with it, you know, if you if you grew up in a time during which air conditioning was readily available, if you grew up, uh, you know, privileged enough to to have uh, access to air conditioning all the time, and of course, if you lived in a, a an environment where it was a, a practical necessity, because mm-hmm. uh, certainly, as, as we'll discuss, there are plenty of places in the world where you don't need an air conditioning system, uh, even a window unit, or if you do, you rarely need to employ it. So maybe you, you have less of a, an appreciation for it in those places. Yeah, I was uh, actually uh, to talk. I was just out of town for a little while. Uh, mm-hmm. I went on a vacation to England and France. And there, um, pretty much all the places we stayed in did not have air conditioning. And it was, you know, this was during September, still pretty warm outside uh, while we were there. But we just open the windows up and nice cool air flows in all all the time and it like it's amazing the difference between uh, – the difference of opening a window in Paris versus opening a window in Atlanta on a summer evening, which is just like, you know, it just lets the swamp air right in. It doesn't <laughs> seem to cool enough. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, places uh, also come to mind uh, Hawaii, uh, or yeah. at least parts of Hawaii. Uh, you'll you'll find you know, a lot of people living happily without an air conditioning system, uh, just because you have a a regular you know dependable uh, temperature more uh, you know year round. Yeah, but also you get a nice Pacific breeze, yeah. which is less the case in a lot of places. Uh, around the world where, you know, you open a window and it just doesn't seem to relieve very much, especially if you live in one of these houses uh, that has not been designed to create cross breezes and all that. Right. Houses that have been designed to depend upon air conditioning. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're going to pick up more or less where we left out off then. So this new invention uh, was impressing people. People were thinking a lot about how to roll it out. Uh, industrial buildings and hospitals were some of the first to jump in there. Hospitals, not surprising, since the hospital plays into the origin story itself. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, you're, you're probably wondering, well, who was the first person to put one of these puppies in their home? Right. Uh, because obviously that's the reality uh, most of us, or a lot of us anyway, live in. Well, Charles Gates, son of in- industrialist and, uh, and uh, gambler John Gates, was the first to set one up in their home in 1914 in, get this, Minneapolis. Minneapolis! <laughs> What? Not in Florida? Not in Texas? I mean, that's strange. Well, hey, I mean, because basically we're looking at a time during which to have a home air conditioning system was a matter, matter of just pure uh, privilege mm-hmm. and uh, and luxury. Right. And, uh, and that's not going to be confined by, uh, uh, you know, geographic constraints. But man, in Minneapolis, I mean, how many year, how many months of the year would that even be useful? Well, it also makes me wonder how many months of the year could you depend on this thing to work? Because uh, one of the... Point. One of the things we're going to touch on here is how some of these systems were uh, were a little problematic. Uh-huh. So uh, innovations uh, in the 1920s would make them smaller and more more affordable and uh, allow the tech to spread. But as uh, Marsha E. Uh, Ackerman points out in her book Cool Comfort, which is an excellent book about the uh, the, the history of of air conditioning. Uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, she points out that in the early 20th century especially, there were not many places where an investment in a costly AC system would give you a return on your investment, uh-huh. uh, except for, quote, huge halls in which multitudes assembled for entertainment. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, otherwise it is just a matter of you've got to be this this super rich individual who can just blow a whole bunch of money on a, an air conditioning system. You, you need something where you're actually going to be able to make the money back on it. And, of course, this leads us inevitably to uh, to theaters. Mm-hmm. And she points out that there were some early success stories even before uh, this point with just traditional theaters, such as uh, an 1880 performance by Edwin Booth. Uh, and, yes, uh, uh, related to uh, the other Booth actor. Oh, uh, really? They, yeah. Yeah, they were uh, brothers, I believe. Wow. Um, but rather different individuals. Uh, Ed, Edwin Booth, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and – and, a famous individual within, uh, you know, the acting scene, certainly, of New York City. So, But anyway, there was an 1880 performance by Edwin Booth on a 100-degree day in New York City's Madison Square Theater, and it was described at the time by English novelist Mary Duff's Hardy. Um, and, this, you know, she was really impressed with it. Uh, you know, it's like, here, you go into this theater, and it's it's sweltering outside, and it's cool inside. Uh, because generally, if you, in a time before air conditioning, what happens when a whole bunch of people gather in an enclosed space to watch performance? Okay, so that's 1880, and that's before Willis Carrier, so they must have been using some more primitive method to cool the theater there. Yeah, 
But there were, there were also a lot of failures during this time uh, and, and uh, certainly in the decades to follow getting to the early uh, uh, 20th century. Uh, you know, despite the realization that AC could really turn things around for sweaty spectator events. Uh-huh. Also in the early 20th century, there were uh, public health initiatives to legislate ventilation in places like this in order to prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses like tuberculosis. Oh, okay, yeah. So uh, this brings us, of course, to the movie theaters, because it's the movie theater where we're going to see the real rollout of air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this was during the the Great Depression as well, you know, a time of of, of great uh, economic hardship. So there would would have been new AC technology, but people wouldn't have had a lot of excess income to spend on installing them in their houses. Yeah, exactly. Like, so the the technology is really coming on board, but there's very little um, uh, market uh, Uh for for home use. But the Theaters saw a return on their investment by deploying them. And some think that uh, air conditioning helped usher in the golden age of Hollywood. That's really interesting. Now, not to discount all those B-movies of the 1930s or the newsreels or the shorts, because, you know, what better time than the Great Depression to escape into the realm of cinema while also staying abreast of, uh, you know, current events. But on top of that, if it was actually cool inside, if it was dry inside, even better, right? Uh, and this has also been presented as part of the origin uh, of the summer movie blockbuster. Oh, okay. Also makes sense. Yeah, and uh, if you go on to uh, YouTube or you know a related site and you look around, you can find some wonderful promos from this era that heavily advertise the air conditioning. I found one from nineteen forty, the nineteen forties, advertising the theater as the coolest place in town. Yeah, I checked out these links you sent. Oh, one of them it starts with the line: "If nature is wonderful, then our air conditioning system is." Out of this world, all hyphenated. <laughs> so many hyphens in English text at the time, especially in ads. Uh, but also, I in a different article I was reading, I found a reference to a 1926 ad for a movie theater in St. Petersburg, Florida, which said, The proud management had the temperature down so low that ladies in evening dresses almost froze. <laughs> Another thing that I noticed about these ads is – Uh, some implicating that cool air-conditioned air is somehow clean as opposed to what I guess like dirty warm air. We Mm -hmm. talked in a previous part of the series about why cold water psychologically seems cleaner than tepid water. Is something similar going on here? Like does it feel like – Cold air coming out of the air conditioner is is sterile, is clean somehow. I mean, you can still catch, you know, TB being circulated through it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I guess it comes down to just the feeling that it is refreshing. Mm-hmm. And refreshment is good. Refreshment, is, then we equate that with health. And, you know, we probably buy into some of these old concepts like uh, miasma theory to some extent, even if we're not familiar with the, the term, like there's a legacy of the kind of, of, of that kind of belief. Yeah. And I'm as guilty of it as anyone like I remember as a kid like like I would I would love to just stick my face against the air conditioning vent oh yeah and just take in the cold air I wouldn't do that with the with the heat but with the cold air it was just this feeling that this was pure you know even though it obviously wasn't this is a funny memory I remember when I was much younger during times when I was having anxiety like uh, you know I was freaking out about whatever my little mind was freaking out about mm-hmm. back then but I remember Leaning over an air conditioner and breathing the cold air coming out of the vent somehow was anxiety relieving to me. With a little mask that you put over your face. (laughs) I did not have a mask, no, but uh, yeah, I don't know why that was. 
But at any rate, this became just part of the theater offering. And as Ackerman points out in her book, quote, by promising to do more for comfort and health than simply move air around, air conditioning reinforced the novelty, modernity, and luxury of the movie-going experience. This is so interesting because it could be another one of the many ways that we don't often consider brute force technological realities influencing media throughout history. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we like to think of movies and books and recorded music and all that solely as products of the creative process by the artist. You know, they're just their creative output. But th- these works of art and forms of entertainment are they're highly influenced by brute facts about the physical conditions under which they were produced or under which they are experienced by the audience. We talked about this in our motion picture episode. Yeah, you. you you, you, you want to, you probably prefer the idea that people were just enraptured by uh, these these cinematic marvels taking place, and not so much that well, they, they their their groin was just super sweaty, and they were just tired of walking <laughs> right. around in swamp pants, you know. But that's sort of coming at it from the opposite perspective. I mean, we talked a lot about uh, physical realities influencing the early days of film from the production side, mm-hmm. right? You know, like about the the standard lengths and, you know, whether uh, they had sound with them and all that. And that influenced conventions of the genres early on or the fact that there was no film editing early on. Right. Uh, but then uh, this is coming at it from the other side, just like the conditions under which films are shown had something to do with the business of film in those days, which ultimately dictated something about what kinds of films were successful and what kinds of films were made. I mean, I, I'm thinking about how if I was just going into a theater to get out of the heat and that's all it was, what would I what, – what kind of movie would I want to see? I might just want to see whatever movie's longest. <laughs> yeah. Or, or indeed, like, just give me a block of, of stuff. It can be films. It can be shorts. It can uh-huh. be the newsreel. I'll just set for whatever. Uh, just, just, sh- just show it to me and let me cool down a little. So uh, according to the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, uh, AC units started making their way into theaters in the 1920s. And the earliest systems, though, were simply heating systems that were modified with refrigeration equipment, which uh, managed to cool the lower seats uh, but left the balcony muggy and sweltering. <laughs> and there are even accounts of people on the lower levels having to wrap their feet in newspaper to stay warm, again, while people in the balcony sweated it out. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until 1922 that Carrier installed the first true theater AC system in the Metropolitan Theater in Los Angeles. And then the, the Rivoli Theater in New York got an updated version in 1922. Hmm. And uh, the Rivoli uh, proudly advertised at the time that they kept their theater cooled to a constant 69 degrees Fahrenheit or 20.6 degrees Celsius. That is – I mean – to each their own, but that is too cold. Yeah. I think once you get lower, if you're talking about Fahrenheit, once you get lower than the low 70s, what the heck are you doing? Yeah, like I'm not one to turn the thermostat in my own house down anywhere near that low. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and if I go into a place that is that – I mean the other thing is like you're not going to be dressed for it. I mean I uh-huh. I think we all have experienced a cold theater before. So I imagine mm-hmm. a lot of us know that if you're going to a movie theater, you bring a, a hoodie, you bring a jacket, et cetera. But, but I'm imagining these like people hot on the street looking to get out of the heat right. and sit down for a couple hours and watch uh, the cinema. And then, uh, and then they get in there and they're just going to be like chilled to the bone, right? Because yeah, they're they not dressed for it. <laughs> they didn't bring blankets with them. <laughs> 
Um, it's a it's a three dog theater uh, experience. Yeah, uh, other theaters would boast that it was quote twenty degrees cooler inside, which in some cases was apparently arguable. Though the, there were theaters where people complained about the cold or said they actually became ill because of the cold. <laughs> uh, there were even charges of AC abuse. What does that mean? That they were just just chilling people out too much. Oh, okay. Yeah, this apparently didn't like uh, I've been assaulted with an air conditioning unit. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean. And also the whole time they're using icicles and egg glue decorations and the promotion of it. I saw some <laughs> wonderful pictures where it, it, it is. They're just really driving it home, like come into the winter wonderland of this theater. Yeah. And there was apparently a lot of back and forth. And the sacrament goes into more detail about it with, you know, certain crusaders for warmer theaters, mm. uh, uh, you know, really getting some press. But then uh, but, but the thing is, it didn't apparently hurt ticket sales in any like real meaningful way. Mm. And Ackerman points out that the first drive-in movie theater opened in uh, June 1933 in Camden, New Jersey, and became a major force, of course, uh, you know, in the 1950s, a major cultural force, uh-huh. very popular. But their popularity challenges the notion that people only wanted a chilly movie-going experience, uh, which uh, most cars of the time, or maybe all cars of the time, were not air-conditioned. Right. right? Yeah. And then generally, you're you're turning your car uh, off. Uh, right. Yeah. You're, you're turning the engine off. You're not running the the AC the whole time. Right. It's it's about watching a film more or less outdoors. Uh-huh. And then it wasn't just movie theaters during the Great Depression. Apparently, re- restaurants, bakeries, libraries, and museums eventually began uh, experimenting with uh, you know enhanced uh, air conditioned environments and saw enhanced traffic because of it. Department stores came into their own as well. And Ackerman, uh, uh, she uh, uh, hilariously describes uh, uh, department stores as basically being, quote, theaters of things. <laughs> I like that. But, of course, you can't really charge admission to a department store, so you get less of a return on an investment that way. And she mentions, like, accounts of, of people who went to the department store to stay cool and just, uh, like, went around trying on dresses they couldn't afford in order to just uh, you know, to get out of the heat, but not really, you know, you know, spending that much money there. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I can see you get more people into the store or exposed to the merchandise. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would find it hard to believe you don't end up selling more somehow that way. But. Yeah, and then I think most, I imagine that, you know, stores are going to, to realize that, you know, maybe they're not going to sell a big expensive dress to somebody on their first visit, but maybe mm-hmm. there's smaller things they can sell. There's, uh, you know, food and drink, et cetera. Maybe uh, what you got to do is you got to pair uh, air-conditioned interior with really pushy salespeople. Yeah. Now, it's uh, also important to note that while ticket prices and locations made AC movie theaters especially a great distraction for a lot of people during these uh, these decades that we're discussing here, this was certainly a part of American life that was affected by segregation. Definitely. Ackerman points out uh, that until the 1960s, overt policies and local customs made movie theaters far less accessible to black audiences, especially in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking poorer seats alternative viewing times, uh, and also just alternative theaters altogether. And, quote, movie theaters in ethnically or racially segregated neighborhoods generally lacked the palatial appurtenances, including air conditioning, of the big downtown movie houses. This is another one of those areas that people might not even think about the legacy of segregation and, and racial disparity and access to, to you know, technology is, is basic access to climate control comfort. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to continue to look at the impact of air conditioning technology.
All right, we're back. So the impact of uh, air conditioning technology is huge, and we can see it in, in various ways. So on the individual level, certainly, it made it easier and or more comfortable to live in hotter regions of the earth. And, uh, you know, and on the other hand, it also meant that the climates uh, that once forced us out uh, socializing amongst each other, be it at a pond, a step well, or just from porch to porch in a neighborhood, now forced us inside, either into communal AC environments, such as some of the ones we've discussed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hopefully like a museum or something, or, or perhaps a library. Uh, but, uh, but it also might just put us in there in our own individual AC caves, cut yeah. off from everyone else, perhaps with that television or that radio yeah. uh, to keep us company, this media socialization, which which, uh, you know, remains, I think, a detrimental aspect of uh, our society to this day. That's a depressing thought, yeah. But, of course, now our stuff's, our, our technology's mobile, so it's not even right. confined by, uh, by air conditioning. Uh, I do want to make a quick health note. We mentioned uh, tuberculosis uh, earlier. Uh, it, 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 there are a few different health problems that are associated with air conditioning, uh, most notably Legionnaire's disease caused by the Legionella bacteria or a few different uh, – by, you know, all varieties of Legionella bacteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it also can contaminate uh, hot water tanks, hot tubs, and cooling towers. But uh, contaminating the water in an air conditioning system is certainly one of the uh, the factors. Hmm. So not to not to scare everyone about air conditioning, but again, just if, it, if it is not properly maintained, yes, it is susceptible uh, to this sort of thing. Now, one of the ways that we already sort of hinted uh, that there was a legacy to air conditioning is in the way that it made many former adaptive techniques of our cultures and our architecture obsolete in some cases, right? Yeah. It enabled architectural designs that uh, wouldn't have worked uh, as well or at all in a pre-air conditioning world. And this includes a suburban tract housing. Uh, one of the greatest examples, though, is the advent of steel and glass skyscrapers, mm-hmm. AC-cooled towers of the modern age, that without that AC uh, would not make as much sense. Yeah. There have even been opinions from architects about the, the impact of air conditioning on sort of the, the aesthetic design of large buildings. I was reading a uh, Chronicle of Higher Education article that cited a quote from the architect Eli Jacques Kahn in 1960, uh, where Kahn said, quote, The period of individualistic, imaginatively decorated skyscraper towers has ended. All of this modern equipment, including the cooling towers for air conditioning systems, takes space. And the logistical area was at the top of the structure, resulting in a bulky and not too handsome mass. (laughs) So he's totally grossed out by the architecture that results from having to put – large air conditioning units on the roofs of large buildings, which just results in sort of boxy buildings mm-hmm. instead of the beautiful skyscrapers that he liked and designed. Yeah, you want it to be like the Sky Temple uh, to Gozer at the time, right. you know, otherwise you're uh, – I mean, really, it really, I think that does come back to the, to the point. Like, what is the legacy of, uh, of, of human-constructed uh, monoliths? The mm-hmm. top of it needs to be the peak of a mountain. It needs to be a holy place for the world of, of uh, humans meets the world of the gods. Uh-huh. And it doesn't – it just ruins it if you put an air conditioning system on top of a ziggurat, right? Right. But even if you're not a, a priest of the urban ziggurat, if mm-hmm. you're not obsessed with the, the design of sky, you know, uh, skyscrapers like Khan is, I mean, you can definitely see the way that it affected architecture at a smaller scale. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. When you come down to materials, uh, certainly even you – know, you don't even have to talk about uh, giant skyscrapers. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a point brought up in uh, a really cool Mental Floss article, Life Before Air Conditioning, by one Miss Solania. I, somehow I think hmm. that's a moniker. 
have to ask yes. uh, <laughs> I have to ask Will about that one. Uh, but uh, th- this article points out the caves and underground housings are a natural means of controlling temperature. Sure. But uh, and, and that means that thick brick and stone construction is a good way to duplicate the same principle uh, in, in our constructions. Uh, but air conditioning meant that you didn't have to depend on thick materials like this as much. Housing could be far cheaper. High ceilings were no longer uh, as essential to keep things cool. Upper floors were not just for the evening. You could live in the attic if you wanted to because you could uh, – you just uh, plug in a super-powered AC and you're good to go. You could sleep inside during the summer, you know, with your television uh, burning right next to you. Right. Well, I mean, another way to think about it is that it, it, air conditioning also affected the planning of cities because mm-hmm. air conditioning makes it more feasible for hot climate areas to have high-density housing. Yeah. You know, so like you can uh, – you can have tall rise apartment buildings in Florida or something, whereas previously, I mean, you're trying to imagine that without air conditioning yeah. sounds pretty hot. Yeah, so you're changing the house, you're changing neighborhoods, you're changing cities. And, and just on the, the level of an individual house, it's important to note that houses are not just physical structures. They mm-hmm. are social structures. And you cannot alter the physical domicile without also altering the shape of life within it. Change the shape of the house and you might uh, you know, think everything's going to be just like it was before, but it's, it's going to be a little different. I think that's a really good point. I mean, it, our architecture shapes our lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. the rooms we're in determine what kind of things we do in them. Uh, There's this classic thing of like, why does everybody end up in the kitchen at a party? There is some reason for that. There's something about kitchens that, you know, people filter in that way. Yeah. Yeah, they all. Yeah, hopefully you have some sort of like a, an island uh, situation uh-huh. <laughs> in the kitchen for people to gather around. Uh, yeah, otherwise they're just all going to be sitting on the stove or something. <laughs> that does make me wonder, though, and I didn't see this reflected in any of the sources we we're looking at. But obviously, one of the strategies to keep your home cooler was that you would have the kitchen in another building. Mm-hmm. So where would people gather there? Is that that was more the age of the sitting room, I guess, or? Yeah, I guess so. Or, I mean, again, we've talked about outdoor cooking as one mm. way of dealing with the heat. Um, you know, like the idea of the barbecue tradition or grilling out. That seems to be a thing that people like to do in the summer. I mean, on one hand, it's like it's nice, you know, warm weather outside, so people hang out outside. But then on the other hand, it's like you're not having to do your heating up of the food inside the house, which right. is great. And furthermore, you can think about how. You know, the the association of outdoor cooking techniques specifically with hotter climates like, you know, the, the, the barbecue and the grill out, these are common in the U.S. South. And I think they come from those hot weather traditions. I wonder how air conditioning has affected the prevalence or the prominence of the cookout. Well, it certainly means you can you can duck in and out, right? Yeah. Now, speaking of city planning, another aspect of, of all of this is uh, you, you have all this air conditioning running in the buildings. Uh, it suddenly gives you a little more license to neglect the maintenance of green spaces and trees, yeah. uh, which, of course, are providing shade, uh, providing more than shade, though. I mean, they're, they're, they're part of your natural environment. That's why you've seen in, in many cities, including our own city, there have been initiatives over the years to, like, to make sure that the areas that have, been, uh, that have lost their green spaces, uh, they're, you, know, you can plant some trees there again and actually bring these places back to life uh, mm-hmm. once more. But from a, like a purely air conditioning standpoint, you don't really need those trees out front, really. They're, they're, uh, the trees uh, that are uh, you know, lining the sidewalk uh, around the, the skyscraper, what, what purpose are they, uh, they playing here? Just something you have to clean up after, right? 
I love that mentality. It sees anything alive as a nuisance. Yeah, like <laughs> and people say, well, you know, it's 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 creating helping to create the air you breathe. And like, no, 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 the air I breathe comes out of a vent in the wall. Right. Those could be parking spaces. <laughs> parking spaces, for God's sake. So, so well, you know, hopefully we haven't gotten into. You know, we're not going to get into all the details of uh, of air conditioning's impact, but hopefully, like so far, we're able to. Uh, to drive home sort of the the ripple effects here mm-hmm. uh, that that really touch on just about every aspect of of uh, society. Now, another one of these ripple effects we've already alluded to, and that is going to become more and more salient as time goes on, I believe, is the energy consumption mm-hmm. and the, the so the energy consumption and the concurrent uh, carbon outputs created by air conditioning demands. Yeah, absolutely. Air conditioning depends on electricity. And as uh, Lucas Davis of uh, UC Berkeley pointed out uh, in uh, 2016 in The Global Impact of Air Conditioning, Big and Getting Bigger, we've seen hot regions of the world grow hotter uh, and hot regions of the world grow richer. And as these trends continue, it just adds to the energy demands of keeping cool. For instance, uh, uh, they wrote that more than 60 million air conditioners are sold each year in China. Uh, and again, this was 2016 when this was written. Mm-hmm. As, as a, as, and a typical window unit uses 10 to 20 times as much electricity as a ceiling fan. On top of that, they depend on refrigerants that are potent greenhouse gases. Uh, Davis argues that carbon legislation and carbon taxing are probably the best way to avoid falling off the, the carbon cliff here, uh, even as the technology grows more energy efficient and you know better energy sources come online to aid but yeah this is but you, we often don't think about just the i mean you probably think about your own energy uh you know costs uh, mm-hmm. concerning air conditioning i mean it's, it's hard not to when you look at the power bill for a particularly hot summer month yeah but yeah you have to realize that that's happening in every house you know in the in you know throughout this city and as other parts of the world get uh, more of the air conditioning bug themselves, mm-hmm. you're just going to see more of that. Yeah. And uh, and also not just in the houses, but these large industrial or commercial spaces, which oh, yeah. I think are a huge part of the footprint. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these binds you're in. I mean, like, it's hard not to to love and appreciate the the comfort provided by air conditioning if you live in a hot climate, especially in the summer. But another thing that should be pointed out here, when you said a typical window AC unit, which is probably going to be using less energy than like your big central AC unit, mm. um, uses 10 to 20 times as much electricity as a ceiling fan. The other side of that is that ceiling fans are incredibly energy efficient. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you get a really good bang for your buck in terms of how much cooler they make you feel compared to how much energy they use. Yeah. So another way to think about this is, you know, if you've got your AC unit and you're trying to be energy conscious, but also you're like, I don't know if I can beat the heat in the hottest days without it. I mean, you know, think about at what point you, you can deal with just having the ceiling fan on. Right. And then at whatever point where you can't hack it anymore, well, then, you know, you you go to your AC god. But if your AC is like mine, like sometimes you reach that point and you're like, uh, I don't think it can catch up. It's too late. Yeah. <laughs> I should have been fighting this battle all day despite the, you know, the, the problems involved with that. Uh, yeah. So uh, it, it, and then, of course, you just grow accustomed to air conditioning. Uh, I guess that's the other side of it as well. Well, I just meant to em- emphasize ceiling fans. Very good. Big thumbs up to ceiling fans, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion. 
Oh yeah, and then of course you can flip the switch during the um, uh, d- during the winter. Yeah, and use them to, to you know uh, more to you know what to push warm air back down. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take one more break, uh, but when we come back, uh, we're going to continue to look at the way air conditioning changed the world. All right, we're back. So I guess uh, we were just going to talk about a couple more things here uh, about the legacy of air conditioning. We, we know that the legacy of air conditioning has been huge, uh, but I was reading a paper by the American historian Raymond Arsenault about the, the impact of air conditioning on the culture of the American South. Uh, and this paper was originally published in the Journal of Southern History in 1984. It's called The End of the Long Hot Summer, The Air Conditioner in Southern Culture – And Arsenault talks in this paper about how the air conditioner should be thought of as one of the biggest factors shaping the evolution of the American South in the 20th century. Uh, So on one hand, he says, well, it created a lot of – it it basically created a lot of economic opportunity where it wasn't before. Like it drew in immigrants from other places in the United States to come to the south and work there. It allowed different kinds of buildings and businesses to take up root there uh, because buildings could now be air conditioned. But over this time, the way people viewed air conditioning transitioned from, quote, from a luxury to an amenity to a necessity Mm -hmm. where, you know, people – more and more all the time think of it as something that's not like nice to have but something you've got to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean if it, t- today, especially in the United States, you travel somewhere perhaps abroad uh, and you, you find out that, it, that something – that a room is not air conditioned uh-huh. or a vehicle is not air conditioned. Uh, yeah, and it feels a bit like, like, like hearing that there's no, going to be no running water or no, you know, no toilets or something uh, along, along those lines. Yeah, totally. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy as we've been alluding to before because the more, the more we come to take air conditioning for granted, the more we build our lives around it and make it harder and harder to live without it. Yeah, and indeed build out into places where it, it would not make sense to live with, without it. I mean, you, for instance, you think of like some of these really hot days we had this summer uh, yeah. and how they impacted, say, uh, say people living in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's certainly, especially if you're dealing with older individuals. Yeah. I mean, there were you – know, and or people that are having to live out on the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there it becomes a real concern, a health concern, uh, the high temperatures. Oh, yeah. The, 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 like hot days can kill people. Yeah. They do all the time. Time. And so air conditioning, one of the things Arsenault says is that, you know, air conditioning did in, in many ways measurably improve life, like it cut down on deaths related to hot weather. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, he's talking about how a lot of the cultural differences and traditions that are associated with communities that live in hot climates, including the American South, are a result of the hot climate. You know, yeah. they're not – it's not just incidental. It's like – you know, like the the cookout tradition, you know, yeah. it's, it's a result of the fact that there's hot weather. And with the introduction of air conditioning, many of the distinct cultural features that define cultures in hot climates diminish over time. And so he sort of argues that climate control has to some extent homogenized the United States as a culture and reduced a sort of uh, – reduced some regional variations that were derived from differences in temperatures throughout the year. Um, and if Arsenault is correct in his thesis about the American South, obviously this effect would not just be an American phenomenon. A similar thing could be happening anywhere that air conditioning pervades it's hot climates changing cultural practices and ways of life along with it. 
Yeah, it just it, it basically changes the equation for for modern living. Yeah. Now we've talked a little bit about the, the commercial growth that mm-hmm. results due to air conditioning technology, especially in uh, in hotter regions, say of the United States in the post war period. But another thing to think about is that AC ends up uh, uh, you know proving essential in the computer age as a way to keep these machines from overheating. Oh yeah, I mean we're filling our living spaces also with these mm-hmm. machines that are dumping a lot of heat constantly. Yeah, I mean I wonder how much. E- how much a computer heats up a non-air-conditioned room or a bunch of computers. Yeah, I'm sure there's some stats on that. We'll have to, to look. And certainly how, it, how and to what extent it's changed over the years. Yeah. Now, uh, there are other strange ways the legacy of air conditioning could be even more powerful than it first seems. For example, there are a bunch of uh, – there are a bunch of little threads of social science research about heat and climate control and various social outcomes at the broad level that are correlated with heat and access to air conditioning. Uh, for example, I was reading a September 2018 article by Jeff Asher in the New York Times that examines a bunch of existing data on the possible or supposed links between uh, weather and crime. Mm. Now, when looking at stuff like this, I do want to avoid something that uh, that, that actually Raymond Arsenault talks about in his article, which is – he calls it monocausal climatological determinism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically like looking at the climate or the weather as like the one cause, causal factor in, you know, broad social trends. Oh, which, yeah. You see this from time to time where it's like hot cultures are like this. Yeah. Cold cultures are like this. Uh, yeah, and sometimes and, there is, you know, in specific areas, there's – I think there's more of a case to be made. Like, I don't know, when you start talking about spices and food, uh-huh. some of that comes into, you know, availability of spices as well. Oh, absolutely. It's it's certainly got to be the case that there are influences of climate and temperature mm-hmm. on culture. Yeah. Uh, I think that's undeniable. It's just that you want to avoid what he calls the monocausal, mm-hmm. you know, climatological determinism where the temperature is the cause of social outcomes. Right. Uh, so we want to be careful not to do that, but look at like possible links where where the temperature could be a factor on broad social outcomes. Uh, and one example is the long-running documented link between hot weather and crime, hot weather and murder rates, for example. Uh, so it seems to be the case that if you just chart an American city across a year, you're very likely to see a pattern where the hotter it is, the more people get murdered. Asher writes, quote, in Philadelphia, for example, there were 2.6 shooting uh, victims per day on average when it was cold, 3.4 on pleasant days and 4.4 on hot days. And that's for a period, I think, of the the mid uh, 2010s. Hmm. Um, And so this really does seem to be related to temperature because while the rates of indoor shootings stay mostly the same throughout the year, the rates of outdoor shootings increase noticeably the hotter it is. Huh. Interesting. Well, one of the things that, you know, about crime that is – people have a, a negativity bias about trends in crime. People mm-hmm. always tend to think oh, things are worse than they've ever been. There's more crime. There's more violence. Uh, today in the United States, that that is not true at all. Violent crime has been dropping for decades in the United States. Murder rates are at a, you know, multi-decade low. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, – but also the, there's something interesting going on there. You don't want – you certainly don't want to overstate potential causality, but – I wonder if could increased access to air-conditioned homes in the summer partially contribute to decreases in crime over time, to decreases in violent crime over time? Because, you know, if if you're seeing that there is some impact of like people being outside in hot weather on hot days with rates of violence could 
access to air-conditioned interior spaces actually play some role there. Yeah, for some inside with the television. So then they're, they're safer, but then they feel less safe because they're watching uh, uh, the murders that are occurring uh, exaggerated and just chewed upon on the television. Well, I do think TV, TV coverage definitely contributes to that negativity bias mm-hmm. in, uh, in people's beliefs about crime and things like that. Whatever the actual reasons, you know, whether uh, air conditioning or climate control or anything has anything to do with it at all, uh, it is certainly the case that, you know, violent crime is, is at a, a you know, a, an exceedingly low point compared to historical trends in the United States. So don't buy into that. It's always worse. You know, it's worse than it's ever been idea. Right. Uh, of course, the other, the other end of the spectrum is that air conditioning is, is not going to solve all the world's problems. Right. Um, though there were I, – I did, I did read a, f- a few little snippets here about some uh, – granted, I think they were into all individuals that were a part of, say, like the Carrier Corporation or uh-huh. other refrigerator companies uh, – refrigerator or air conditioning companies. They were making like a case that like that we can do it. This can – this is going to oh, bring really? about world peace. Uh, oh, and I think no. the particular argument was not like social, but it was more like, hey, we're arguing – we're getting into all these scuffles over resources. But if we have enough air conditioning, then we can get all the resources from all the places and then we won't fight anymore. Wow. Uh, which, uh, you know, has uh, not turned out to be the case. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't buy into that. Another interesting uh, bit of social science data that I was looking at about uh, air conditioning is uh, the same article by Jeff Asher points it out, by the way, uh, an interesting piece of research by Harvard Kennedy School associate professor Joshua Goodman, who found a correlation between cooler temperatures and increased academic performance. Uh, Quote, uh, students scored lower when they just experienced a hot school year than when they just experienced a cool school year, but that air conditioning in schools mostly eliminated the influence of heat on academic performance. So you have an unusually hot school year that tends to hurt academic performance if your school is not air conditioned. Uh, And this sort of just intuitively makes sense to me. It's like, you know, it's hot weather. It seems like it's harder to focus on mental tasks and things like that. Um, But that air conditioning inside the schools mitigated this effect. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, every time I, I pick up my son from school, from his elementary school, uh, he'll come out and, uh, you know, often like hold his hand when we're w- walking uh, away from the school door and his hand will be so cold <laughs> from the, the air conditioning inside. But, uh, but I, yeah, I'm all for it being there if it, uh, you know, it gives them in the environment they need to learn. And with all these social science findings, I, I think we should always be careful not to read too much into single findings until there's been a lot of replication and analysis of right. the findings by others in the field. Uh, so I think it's best to sort of treat these as interesting preliminary findings. I will, I will say this. Like if you're in a cool environment and you're prepared, mm-hmm. you have a greater ability to regulate your own temperature. You know, yeah. you can always put on a jacket or a hoodie, right, in, a, in an overly air-conditioned space, no mm-hmm. matter what the, you know, the realities of the energy consumption are there. Uh, likewise, in a hot space, there's generally only so much you can take off, and there is an absolute limit to what you can take off. Right. Uh, uh, you know, social decorum uh, aside. Right. Uh, but but if either of these findings are on the right track about like uh, academic performance or crime, I mean, you wonder in what other ways could temperature and climate control be changing our society and our culture that, mm-hmm. you know, we're not appreciating or haven't been studied numerically in these ways. Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind is just uh, different cultures are also going to have a different relationship 
with being cool and being hot. Yes. Things that have evolved due to their, you know, just their cultural exposure to different temperatures or sometimes even ideas. I didn't get too far into this because I wasn't encountering a lot of scholarship about it. But, uh, for instance, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the rollout of air conditioning in in China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some interesting uh, ideas about, like, what cold and hot mean within traditional Chinese uh, medicine, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and so, you know, there, that's one possibility to look at. Like, how does how does that play out in a culture that has certain values uh, historically attached to, say, warm and cold air? Oh, I want to know more about that. Well, what what are the values? Well, I mean, some of it gets into uh, to, to yin and yang, and you know, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, some of the papers I, I was finding were I, I was hesitant to really include them because they were like from the mostly from the seventies and eighties, yeah. and they uh, they were dealing with like very rare cases of people with um, they were experiencing frigophobia, well, like a fear of cold air and, a, and huh. an aversion to air conditioned spaces, and uh, and so these papers were, were tying like these rare cases in with potential, looking at potentially how uh, some of these ideas within Chinese culture uh, affected these individuals. And I believe uh, I believe it was in, like in China and Taiwan, and perhaps there was a case in Singapore they were looking at. Hmm. Uh, but in, in any rate, it's one of those things I, mean, I, I wouldn't want to you know, certainly wouldn't want to blow it out of proportion because I think we're talking about very rare cases of people with um, with, with a with a with a mental illness. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, but but to what extent that is exasperated by ideas that are present in a given culture? I mean, I guess it's open for debate. Sure. But I would want to I would want to read more about that before I, I you know, said anything more definitive. But it does serve as like an interesting just side example of like, well, here's an idea of what cold and heat mean. Here's a way it could, uh, in extreme cases, present itself. But then, how does it end up presenting itself in more in, in milder cases? You know, and 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 more just sort of, uh, you know, ambiently throughout a culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I would think would probably be hugely significant that we haven't really examined at all is how air conditioning affects fashion. Hmm. Yeah. Like what what people wear in what kinds of spaces, what's acceptable to wear. Yeah, I mean I I I certainly wouldn't think think of it as much as fashion, but like I generally prefer to wear a a hoodie uh and air conditioning allows me to do that year round. You know, climate <laughs> control allows me to do it year round. Right. But then artificial climate tends to demand that you do it, you know. Yeah. So you generally, you know, if you, especially if you have a, an office job, you're having to dress for an artificial environment and then also perhaps for the environment that exists between the artificial environments that you spend your time. Our uh, office environment is very strange because you get um, – so it's like artificially cold, of course, in the summer because mm-hmm. it's air conditioned. But then at certain times of day, if you're by the window, you become an ant under the magnifying glass. And so yeah. that totally throws everything off too. Yeah, yeah. This is – I don't think there's any like passive solar design uh, <laughs> uh, employed here. And then, of course, the studios themselves get really hot. Sometimes the studios here are that sweaty groin you mentioned earlier. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you have it, air conditioning, uh, a three-parter here. Uh, Again, we weren't able to cover everything in the history of air conditioning or or certainly with refrigeration, which is at at times intertwined uh, with with the history of air conditioning. But hopefully we touched on some of the key ideas and perhaps we've – 
we've uh, presented enough uh, information that'll that'll you know make you stop and think about the air conditioning that you use in your life. Uh, maybe uh, value it a little bit more and, and realize that in, in many cases, you know, it is it is more of a luxury. Um, but we would love to hear from everyone out there. Like, what, what is your relationship with air conditioning? Have you ever lived without it? Uh, particularly, have you ever lived without it in a hot climate? And how, you know, what did you do to manage it? We have already heard back from some listeners oh, yeah. on this. And I'm, I, hopefully we'll get to roll these out in a listener mail in the future. Uh, yeah, we heard from at least one listener who uh, grew up in India and who talked about their experience not even uh, thinking of sweat as a bad thing the way most Americans do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is this kind of American thing to think of. Like any any sweat that is occurring without your consent mm-hmm. is, uh, is is a travesty, you yeah. know? Like like sweat is the thing that, that happens on my terms. Yeah, I, I admit I, I fall totally into that. Like I – I'm cool with being sweaty if I'm like hanging out outside, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm working outside or something like that. Can't stand being sweaty if it's like, ooh, what's the word? It's like if you're sweaty on your way to work or something, that's just the worst. Yeah. Well, we've also had lots of media to really drive this home, right? Lots of deodorant commercials that really just drive home how gross it is to be sweaty. Yeah. There's uh, something wrong with your body. Yeah. I, I, I think I used to buy into that more. Now I'm more of the mind that like, like, like feeling sweaty like feels good. Yeah. Uh, like I think part of that was from like sweating on my own terms, but then I did enough of that where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not – even like really exerting myself, but it's hot out. I'm sweating. It feels good to sweat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then of course it's you know you're not going to you're generally not going to smell bad until later anyway. Like that fresh sweat is not the problem. <laughs> uh, but I would also love to hear from anyone about uh, movie theaters. Uh, how cold do you like your movie theater? Um, are you one of these people that would prefer to have to wear a winter coat? Uh, and then uh, I know we've heard from some folks when we talked about the tingler on our other. Uh, uh, show stuff to blow your mind. We heard from some people who went to the theater back in the day. So I would love to hear from uh, any um, you know older members of the listening uh, audience out there that might be able to chime in about theaters of old. What was it like going back then? And w- in the war between the uh, the chilly movie theater and uh, the the outdoor um, uh, drive-in uh, cinema, uh, which do you prefer? Oh, it's got to depend on what you're seeing, right? I think there, yeah, there are some films that are more suitable for the drive-in, right? Yeah, it's B movie territory. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> I think I saw the MacGruber movie at the, <laughs> the drive-in. Oh man, I guess that I guess that's a good one. I've I've only seen. I think I've only seen like classic horror films at the drive-in. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I also saw the Grindhouse movies at the drive-in. That was fun. Oh, nice. Yeah, the double feature. We are fortunate enough in Atlanta that we do have. Uh, we still have a drive-in theater that yeah. uh, that folks can go to. All right. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That is where you'll find it. If you want to check out our other show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, that's at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And you can find both of these shows wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you do get your podcasts, uh, just make sure you uh, rate and review us. Bring all the stars. Bring all the love. <laughs> Please. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 